Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that critically analyzes some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. I'm Brittany. And this week is the first episode of our special mini-season on The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, Suzanne Collins' prequel to the Hunger Games series. Yeah, I'm very excited. Yeah, me too. Uh, This is the first time we've done something like this. Today, we are going to be talking about chapters 1, 2, and 3. And we've got some different format styles than our normal episodes, but I've really been enjoying the book so far, and I'm excited to get into talking about it. Definitely. Me too. All right. Well, would you like to start us off with a recap about kind of the basic things that happen in these chapters? Yeah. So we are looking at everything from Coriolanus Snow's perspective. He is actually in poverty, he and his family, and is kind of secret poverty but he gets to be a mentor for one of the tributes to the Hunger Games. So he is given his assignment. He gets the, quote, worst of the worst, which is the female tribute from District 12. And then he goes to meet her when the train with all the tributes arrive. Yeah, and so obviously, uh, you know, a lot more happens than that kind of brief overview, but we'll be talking a lot about that as we go. Just like our regular episodes, you want to start off with a quote. So this quote comes from the first chapter. Coriolanus is kind of just thinking about, i.e. giving background information, (laughs) to this new practice of having mentors as a part of the Hunger Games. Everyone agreed that if the Hunger Games were to continue, they needed to evolve into a more meaningful experience. And the pairing of the Capital Youth with the District Tributes had people intrigued. Yes, and it intrigues me, too. Absolutely, yeah. It's always a question I kind of had of, like, how did the first games have mentors if there weren't victors yet? And starting to answer that and and talk about how the games themselves didn't even have mentors until it was necessary. It's really setting the stage that the games as we knew them in the original books, you know, they're not there yet. A lot of this is getting to where they become them. Yeah, I I kind of love that idea. I mean, in, in a very twisted way that at first it's just, oh, the first 10 years, well, we're just going to, like, throw kids in a, you know, dilapidated ruins <laughs> of what used to be an amphitheater or whatnot, then there's going to be some weapons because we just want the slaughter and, like, kind of the shame on them, you know? But then they're like, uh, people actually have to watch this for it to be effective, So they're not adding mentors to give anyone a better chance. They're just doing it for intrigue's sake to make it quote unquote more meaningful and making it more meaningful at this point is to pair them with someone in the capital. And obviously down the line that changes to pair them with previous victors, which is also, you know, supposedly meaningful to the capital citizens because they're just like, well... I rooted for this one or, you know, they get to know them supposedly over time. Obviously, it's all a very contrived image that the victors would show, Mm -hmm. but they still feel like they know them. They still feel like they've been on a journey with them. But at this point, they don't really have those same feelings because they're still so newly out of the aftermath of war that it's like actually pairing them with capital children, I mean, 18-year-olds, is a more effective way for them to create intrigue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And actually, if we want to move into kind of our first segment, our first impressions, 
that really kind of goes into what I what I'm really seeing as as kind of this book and especially the setting of this book is it's so much influenced by the end of this war and looking at snow as an example of the poverty and the hunger that the capital citizens experienced during that war you know snow himself talks about how he has his own battle or game with hunger on how to kind of maintain the appearance of living well off while dealing with the possibility of starvation and you know it's kind of reframed the hunger games not about the hunger of the tributes and of the districts but as kind of a consequence of the hunger that was placed upon the capital as a consequence of the rebellion yeah for sure i really like how collins like shows some of the poverty but also at the same time showing his disdain for it like his superior Mm. attitude that comes along with it because it's not just like oh i don't have enough to eat it's the smell of of boiling cabbage is the smell of poverty and like that's what is so distasteful to him because he thinks that he should have more yeah, and, and him specifically, right? It's not that mm-hmm. no one should be this hungry, right? It's not a human rights issue. It's <laughs> I'm a snow and I should have more than this. It's not a human rights issue for snow. It's a snow rights issue. Uh, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> snow always falls on top. Yeah, exactly. Lands on top, lands on top. <laughs> well, what were your first impressions? I'm already interested in some of the new characters. Mm. I was definitely surprised when it showed that Tigress is his cousin. Yeah, and like the first paragraph. I know. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, that's. I'm very interested to see where that goes because obviously by the end of the Hunger Games trilogy, it's made very clear that she is perfectly happy with him being destroyed Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it'll be interesting to see if there's any cracking of a relationship like hmm i I can see how this would turn into something later or if it'll just be like no they have a great relationship now and then it just leaves everything in between to your own imagination yeah do you have any first impressions in terms of characters or plot lines so far yeah, I mean, I think these things are interesting. Uh, as for characters, I'm really, really intrigued by, I think it's Sejanus Plinth, the essentially rival of Coriolanus, who was born in District 2, but whose family, by siding with the capital, became essentially the new richest family. But he, I think, is an interesting because they talk about how he identifies as a district citizen rather than as a capital citizen. And the fact that he is a mentor to a District 2 tribute is going to be, I think, really interesting for him um, and seeing him having to kind of live out that privilege and those relationships in real time. uh, I'm really intrigued to see what will happen there. Yeah, and I love how you say it's like kind of Snow's rival, but it's great because it only seems to be Snow's rival from Snow's side of it. Hmm. I don't think that Sejanus thinks of him that way. It doesn't seem like he really puts himself at odds and he seems a little too honest, you know, whereas Snow's Mm -hmm. already playing a game in every interaction he has with anyone because he wants to get back on top of society, whereas Sejanus doesn't seem to be thinking that way, at least thus far that we've seen of his character. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What do you think about Lucy? 
I'm interested in, in finding out more about Lucy. I, I definitely am intrigued. I think that we're going to be seeing a lot more of her and he, learning a lot more about kind of why she performs the way she performs so far. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there seems to be something going on with that reaping much more than, than what we would expect. And so I definitely see a lot of it as performance and I'm intrigued to see kind of where that comes from for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. She she definitely seems like she's going to be a very interesting character. Yeah, I'm glad that even though this book is from Snow's perspective, you still have a very unique and probably will turn out to be complex girl that's still near the center too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, why don't we go on to a segment that we're calling Touch Points, where we relate what we're seeing in this book with things that we see in our lives or our society or, you know, other kind of connections that we're making. Yeah, sounds good. Um, one that I had was, you know, talking about Sejanus's family, the Plinths, when I was reading about kind of their coming to power and being economically very privileged and having a lot of power in the city while still being kind of culturally and socially looked down upon. It reminded me a lot of kind of the rise of the middle class, like the bourgeoisie in industrializing Europe, Hmm. where, you know, there was this new class of people who had economic power, usually or often much more than the actual nobility, right? And they became essentially a new class of people who were able to get their own kinds of rights and power institutionalized in certain ways just because, you know, they were able to find new ways of succeeding in society even outside of the formalized noble structure that was all hereditary, right? It was based off where you're born. And so similarly, the plinths were not born in the capital. They do not have that inherent class status, but they're able to economically kind of advantage themselves to such an extent that they become extremely powerful, but are still dealing with that that intersection there. So I think that that's, that's a really interesting kind of look at that, that I certainly wasn't expecting to see and just continues to make the world of Panem even more nuanced and, and kind of those connections to history, I think are really interesting too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think it's a really real social situation that some people find themselves in if they're born in a different class and then somehow quote-unquote make their way up part of how accepted or not accepted you would be would be based on whether you you know just completely embrace this new socioeconomic reality Mm -hmm. you know because he's like So 10 years in the capital and the privileged life it provided has been wasted on Sejanus. That's his perspective because he's not automatically excited to mentor somebody who's going to be killed so that he can (laughs) progress his own status in the capital society. Like because he's not assimilating to that culture, then he's not accepted probably by a lot of people. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, But if he was like his dad, who, you know, through war profiteering, got that status, people seem to be accepting him. Yeah, it's just kind of interesting. I mean, and he even said something about like, my dad keeps wanting to get my thoughts right or something like so it seems like yeah, he's definitely kind of sold out to the wealthy exploiting perspectives. Whereas his son hasn't yet. Absolutely. Well, what touch points did you 
see in these chapters? There was two things that struck me, and one was when Snow is waiting at the train station, and then these two train cars come in with the tributes on them, and they're being transported in livestock cars. Mm -hmm. And when I read that, like, my mind automatically just went to when people of, of Japanese ancestry were sent to concentration camps in the LA area, many before they were transported to the concentration camps were held in the Santa Anita racetrack mm-hmm. and like actually held in horse stables. So it automatically brought my mind there. And then like a few pages later, it mentions Snow trying to remember where is it the tributes are held again and oh isn't it in the peacekeeper's stables and I was Mm -hmm. just like oh my god it just directly brought me there and I don't know if Suzanne Collins was purposefully drawing any connections I I don't know but yeah I think that there's something so significant about that correlation between forcibly removing people from their community and showing them they are like animals to you. Yeah, and ultimately culminating in them literally being put into a zoo exhibit. Like, yeah, so powerful. Yeah, yeah. So that one struck home for me, and I just found it so amusing. <laughs> just the super, like, 1% thoughts and ideas. Like, they don't tax properties in the capital. Only the districts, like, get <laughs> property taxes. Like... <laughs> Exactly. Like, all of those loopholes are just so ridiculous for the people who have the most resources to be able to pay. And then, um, you know, saying like, oh, if they couldn't pay them, they would have to move to some obscure neighborhood and join the grimy ranks of the ev- of everyday citizens without status, without influence, without dignity. I'm just like, yeah. But I think one of the things that really struck me was the xenophobia that comes out. So it was talking about the plinths again, like you were saying before, and it was saying the plinths now enjoyed privileges that the oldest, most powerful families had earned over generations. And like the word earned, Mm. I feel like is so entrenched in white supremacy and like ideas of we have this position because we earned it without looking at any, you know, structural disparities that are like were put in the systems to begin with and says for Coriolanus the plinths and their kind were a threat to all he held dear the newly rich climbers in the capital were chipping away at the old order simply by virtue of their presence Mm. this is like so xenophobic but it's like the I don't know I feel like it just captures the attitudes of people who are like these other people shouldn't be here because that infringes on who i am it chips away at like our families our history them being here is an affront to what my family has earned or something like that so yeah not not that i've earned like like he you know (laughs) he has clearly done well in school and things like that but it's not like he is bootstraps pulling himself up he's trying to maintain the status of his family this is something that mm-hmm. he earned just by being born a snow and that is uh is yeah yeah i think really really prescient oh so good so good one other thing in the terrible ways <laughs> <laughs> uh talking about 
you know, xenophobia and all those other kinds of things, I did find it very, very fitting that Reaping Day is on July 4th. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The day of, you know, where we celebrate America, arguably the most neo-imperialist and (laughs) xenophobic country in the world. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I I found that quite amusing as well. (laughs) Well... Why don't we move into our segment we're calling Back to the Future, where we go back to the original trilogy set 65 years after this book. Did you see any kind of parallels or mirroring that, that you thought wanted to, to bring up looking at this book through the prism of that trilogy? Yeah, I think I really, I really love how Lucy in some ways kind of mirrors Katniss and what happened at her reaping and not that their personality is the same at all which is great but I like that there's some resonance there with what happened but not in a way that feels like just too contrived and it's like oh you're just trying to hearken this back to the originals I feel like it's this disadvantaged girl from District 12 that defies the capital and her defiance of the capital is through song a song that has <laughs> lyrics that are just so in your face about <laughs> you can't take any of this from me anything you could take from me is not that important to me anyway you know it's just she's so defiant she's wearing this super colorful outfit that she's even defying what maybe possibly was like a rigged type of situation she's just being defiant in so many ways whereas Katniss was defying what was seen as normal and in her context it was through volunteering because Mm -hmm. nobody just volunteers to go die. Yeah, I just kind of love seeing that, like, defiant young girl just standing up, even in the midst of oppression, to Mm -hmm. put shame on the capital, but, like, in a very underhanded way. Yeah. I really love that, and I imagine Katniss is a a girl of color, so I, I was kind of automatically reading Lucy that way, too. So I'm kind of, like, reading her as Romani. Hmm. Because there's, going back historically, some elements of music and performance and I think even potentially, like, training animals for circuses and stuff like that. Well, I mean, there's Romani circuses even today. I was recently hearing about some cities in France, like, denied them permits to be able to have that. And, like, really they were Mm. saying it's only because we're Romani that they're doing this. And it would be something that the capital residents would just love you know, like, oh, look at how exotic, look at how talented she is, you know, like, I could totally see that being just exploited in like this really gross way. So that's kind of how I'm reading her. Yeah, that is an interesting uh, idea. I I hadn't thought of that. I I honestly, because I've also, you know, heard about Katniss being able to be read as, as Indigenous and I was wondering if that's what they're going to with Lucy as well, since her name's Lucy Greybeard, and that's so close to, like, Lucy Greybird, which, like, to me was very evocative of some of the names that that you'll hear of North uh, Native American people in particular, and so I was wondering if that was where they're going to go, but I think the performative aspect definitely felt much more kind of representational in the way that you were talking about it. Uh, I also, you know, talking about the differences between her and Katniss, like, they both use music 
Katniss's music, though, is always this kind of, like, folk music, you know? It's a way of connecting her with the people, whereas I read Lucy's music as punk music, where it's giving huh. a finger to the system, you know? <laughs> and yeah. I think, yeah. that, you know, I'm not a music historian or anything like that myself, but just, like, that's kind of how it came off to me, and I think that that was a really interesting, you know... Suzanne Collins has used music in the past to mix effect, I think, but this was a really interesting song to read and not hear because it was so such a strong, defiant kind of gesture, and not having kind of the the music behind it made me really be like, is this a punk song? Like, am I hearing a punk song in District 12? Is that what's happening right now? Yeah. Well, and also interesting, too, because by the time you get to Katniss, her father was chastised by her mother, right? Because she was singing this song that she shouldn't be singing. Mm. And part of it was just because it's kind of a intense song for a kid to be singing <laughs> uh, with the, the hanging tree, but also because it was rebellious in certain ways. Mm. Whereas I don't know if maybe they don't have all those same things in place yet for the panem that Lucy's living in. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting point. And, and how much did Lucy affect that? We shall see. <laughs> was there any other Back to the Future moment you were thinking of? There is, yeah. Just briefly, it's less kind of like a mirror, and it's more of something that's kind of cha- changing the shape of how I look at something. But looking at the way that Snow describes peacekeepers, it makes me think of them more as soldiers, whereas in the original trilogy, especially in Hunger Games and Catching Fire, I saw them much more as police officers. I don't know if that was just a mistaken kind of idea in my head, but certainly, you know, by the time of Mockingjay, there's there's not a lot of war going on, and so both sides are acting more like soldiers. But the way that they interact with them in the first two books make me think of them much more as the local police, and still often abusing authority, also utilizing the black market, things like that, but... One of the changes in Catching Fire is when they lose kind of the local police and they get people coming in from afar, right? And that's kind of a big change. And so I, I guess I'm I'm really interested in kind of seeing the way peacekeepers are represented here and then maybe going back and seeing them in the original trilogy because here Snow is defining them as soldiers, right? And even indentured soldiers where he talks about at one point, if you are indebted, you're often going to be a 20-year contract yeah, that's essential, essentially indentured slavery, right? That is uh, really interesting to me to kind of see those elements of, of that system that just is a very different representation than, than I saw uh, personally in the original books. Yeah, I could see it also like just changing over time. Mm. They started out much more like soldiers because this war had been going on for several years. And now even after the district's surrender there's still a ton that needs to happen. And so you would probably use those same people. Whereas later, I think, in the Hunger Games trilogy, a lot of the peacekeepers come from District 2, and District 2 is kind of like this elevated district. So, yeah, I kind of wonder if it kind of turns more to policing rather than before, since it was so close to war, it's much more military-based. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, so it's just something to keep keep an eye on for sure. Well, our last segment is what we're calling rumination. Uh, what kind of things are you thinking about are, are sticking in your head or might be in your mind as you read forward to the next few chapters? What's kind of 
sticking in my head is, I guess there's two things. So one is something that just like struck me when he was talking about like, what a luxury it would be to toss something in the trash without a second thought. Mm. But then nothing was disposable. Mm-hmm. No calorie unwanted, no item unable to be traded. And everyone learned to despise waste. It was creeping back into fashion, though. That idea, like, it's creeping back into fashion to, like, throw things away and dispose of things. Yeah, that idea is just something that not only will be interesting to see if they show that anymore, you know, and, like, people have short memories, and so they're having these Hunger Games so that it keeps reminding people, like, of what happened. And then by the time Katniss you know, in the 74th Hunger Games comes around, like, the capital citizens have been in such affluence for so long, there's no connection to the past event anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it'll be interesting to see kind of how people are remembering things and how narratives are constructed. Um, And the other thing I'll be keeping my eye on is just the patriotism. So when it starts in the first chapter and it has the gem of Penem song, it's just like, it'll be interesting to see the indoctrination of mm-hmm. patriotism. And that song was really interesting. And I loved it juxtaposed to Lucy's song, you know, where it's like, oh, we humbly kneel to your ideal, you know, and like, <laughs> you give us light, you reunite, to you we make our vow. And like, yeah, just her having a song that's the opposite of all of that. Uh, it'll just be interesting to see if that keeps coming up too. Hmm, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the thing I'm I'm kind of ruminating on is this idea of kind of rebellion and defiance. Mm. Defiance, go back and listen to our Defiance and Hunger Games episode. It's a it's a big <laughs> deal in in those books and it's really interesting seeing that same theme through Coriolanus's perspective because you know, the first time we hear about defiance is his grandmother singing that song as an act of defiance against the rebels, yep. saying that I will continue to uphold these traditions and these beliefs and this patriotism regardless of what you're trying to do and snow as a person of privilege he flinches when he's called a rebel by lucy right she (laughs) sees it as basically a compliment right but he doesn't want to be seen as a rebel at all and i think that that's such an interesting perspective because so much of the the original books were about, you know, just showing them that you're still yourself. And Snow's not doing that at all. Snow (laughs) thinks that it's much more important to maintain things even through subterfuge rather than to be authentic uh, and to be defiant in that way. So I think that maybe, yeah, that, that kind of intersection between authenticity and defiance um is something i'm really really looking forward to especially yeah from what we've seen of lucy i don't know how authentic she is either but she certainly is defiant and so that's that's really what's kind of been on my mind and and what i'm really going to be excited to look forward to uh for the next few chapters Mm -hmm. yeah that's fascinating and and that makes me think of just in contrast to pita Mm. You know, I want to die as myself. I don't want them to change me. And like how even through the games and in a lot of ways, he puts his feelings on the line and, you know, isn't afraid of that vulnerability. Whereas Snow and Katniss very carefully craft their narrative so that they Mm -hmm. can reach their end goal. I mean, obviously Katniss's end goal is much more noble than Snow's is, but (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting how they're more similar. Yeah, yeah. Well, next week, 
we are going to be talking about the next three chapters, chapters four, five, and six, continuing in this mini-season. And if you want to join us for our discussions on these first three chapters on Patreon, we would love to have you join us. You can click on the link in our episode description and we'll be hosting discussions for the chapters corresponding to each episode we do. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find us on social media by searching for Geek Between the Lines on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Pinterest. Or you can send us an email at geekbetween at gmail.com. You can also go to our website at bit.ly slash geekbetweenthelines. Or, as Brittany mentioned, join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines. Especially as we're going into this new season, uh, we're hoping to get some new listeners. And the best way to help us do that is to give us a rating or review. So whether you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you're hearing us, that rating really, really helps. And so please, please, please help us find some more community to share this book with. And if you're reading this book with any of your friends, you should definitely tell them about the podcast too. We also want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacet for designing our logo, not only for the podcast as a whole, but for this mini season. I really love the new special logo that she designed for us. So if you want to see more of her designs, you can go to lacelet.com or search for Lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out! out.